0: So, as I explained last week, um, we've got 12, 13, and 14 tonight, but we will not do 13 tonight. Uh, we'll gloss over it next week. We'll do 13 by itself. So, those I know there's a lot of people like waiting for like the famous chapter in all of 1 Corinthians. Um, the love chapter will be dealt with on its own next week, but we will include it within our context tonight. As tonight we look at one body. So let us pray and um, we'll get into our study and see what God has for us tonight. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a city that has been replanted, and the people that Rome replanted the city with are freed slaves. So the social order is very much free for the taking. It's a a city of opportunity. In a world where the rich ruled and the poor kind of went with the flow and there was uh, half the population were slaves of the time, Uh, Corinth became a city of opportunity like America is in the rest of this world. It's, it's It's a place of opportunity where you can make yourself rather than be born into a certain social status. And so, That's going on here in Corinth is that you've got a lot of people trying to climb the social ladder and there's a lot of competition in the church. And it's also a city in which we here, America, we're usually entertained by several means. It's sports, it's concerts. We have venues we go to to attend. In Corinth, the people were entertained through public speaking that was their national, well, I guess not a nation, but their, their city pastime. That's how they enjoyed to pass the time as let's go hear so-and-so speaking here and let's go hear this person's ideas. And public speaking is so popular in Corinth. It took on much of a form that American Idol has taken in our nation in which people will sing and people have their opinions and they vote and they give their critiques and they are brutal or they're honest or they're very kind and sometimes they make it big. And in Corinth, that was public speaking. A lot of opinions, a lot of public opinion. The public voted by following people and supporting them with money. And um, it came to a point where when the Corinthian city had an Olympic-style game every two years, um, one of the main events of these Olympic games was oratory. They had people show down in public speaking. This is how big it was. It was considered a sporting event for them. And so Paul comes into this culture in which people are madly trying to race to the top of the social order. At least those that have money are um, working very hard at that, trying to make something for themselves. And you have this culture of public speaking. And so Paul has battled with this culture. The Church believes that what they should be hearing is basically what the culture was doing hey let 's have a speakathon and see who 's the best. So the Church was listening to their teachers and saying all right let 's put in our votes let 's follow the best let 's support the best and let 's condemn the ones that are not too good and That was going on. They adopted the culture and also the social status race thing i 'm um, at the lord 's Supper the rich who were the ones that hosted gatherings of the church, because they're the only ones with homes big enough, were causing people to sit at different sections of the home and putting the popular and the rich ones at the dining room and putting everybody else in the courtyards and making them find kind of a place to sit. What would often happen is the servants would come bring the food and the people of the dining room would eat to their content and then the leftovers would go to the other people in the other rooms. That's the way Corinthians partied. And this was being adopted by the rich in the church. And that's how they were practicing the Lord's Supper. And so Paul is looking at this, this division with teachings and this division with the Lord's Supper. And he has to say, look, I need you guys to get your act together. I need you guys to be one. I need you guys to be unified and to agree together on certain things. And so in 1 verse 10, Paul spills out his purpose in writing. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so throughout the letter, he's been calling them to oneness in very different aspects. And last week, dealing with the communion um, divisions, we looked at one table. Paul wants them to gather, together. And it may not be realistic to sit at the same literal table because tables are only so big and they could only fit nine to 12 people in the dining rooms back then, archaeology tells us. So yeah, different tables were necessary. But are these tables of the same equality and the same status? Or are people getting drunk at one and hardly getting scraps of food to eat at another? So Paul's asking them, hey, let all the tables be one. Let them all be equal. We're a family and so he's been calling them to oneness, just as Jesus prayed in John 17. Remember, Father, let them be one, just as you and I are one. So our oneness becomes a model of the one God that we follow. And a very radical message in Paul's time. In Paul's time, there were multiple multiple gods, a multitude of them. And you sort of had a God for every niche of life. The God of gardening, the God of transportation, the God of good luck, the God of wine, the God of food, like everywhere, gods everywhere. And these gods, you know, you would have your little things and they would go in different places. And in, in, in a lot of the mythologies, the gods didn't get along. But Paul wants the church to get along because God, the God we worship, is not split into many gods and they don't fight against each other he's one god who sent his son to die for us and paul wants us to emulate that oneness and laying down our lives for one another that's what he's been getting at and so tonight the aspect of oneness we're looking at is one body it's in first corinthians 12 through 14 one body so let's look at what he has to say Go ahead and look with me at 12, verse 12, and you're going to get the concept here of body. 12, chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. So there's... A body has many members on it, right? I've got fingers or some people call them phalanges. I've got hands and arms and legs. I've got a head. I've got lots of body parts. it got many members, but it's one body. And he says, so it is with Christ. We have many members, but we all make up parts of one body. And so also in verse 27, 1227. now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So here's where we get the concept, body. And Paul wants us to understand we're one body. We're not a multitude of bodies. You're not your own body. 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 We all together make up one body. Now, this illustration is brilliant, and it's been used forever and ever and ever down the ages. And even outside of Paul, outside the Bible, this illustration has been used a bunch. In fact, during Paul's time, um, body was usually referred to body politic or in other words, the political movements or the state, uh, they, we even today we call it the head of the state. And then you've got the body. It's all the people, all the members of society and writers during Paul's time would write about how the state was like a body and everybody served its functions, different parts of the body flowed, and, and the, the government was the head. And so this was a very common illustration. It's always been a common illustration. It's brilliant. The idea that we're all different people, we're all different body parts, if you will, making up this one body. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the different body parts that you might be, whether you're the armpit or the toe or the glorious right arm. Um, We're going to look at those and and see the, the diversity, but the unity amongst us as we function as one body. But before we get to that, We need to step back just for a minute and say, is this just a well-used metaphor? Is this just a well-used illustration that we're all so used to hearing, we're immediately going to jump into the assumption that, yes, we're all different, but we're all one. We get what he's saying. Or was there something specific about the body that Paul wanted to bring out as well? For example, you could use different illustrations to make the same point, an orchestra, Right, an orchestra is many instruments, but one sound. That's the idea with an orchestra. You got different instrumentation, and even amongst the different instruments, you have the violins, and the violins are divided into different parts that are playing different melodies and harmonies. So even different instruments and different parts for the different instruments, and then you've got the lead violinist, and who's got his own little part, and it's crazy intricate. Up to a hundred uh, different parts within an orchestra, even sometimes more. And yet all of them are following the head, the conductor, who's telling them all when to play and what to play and how to play. And it all comes together. So here we have a similar illustration. But Paul doesn't choose to use a musical illustration here. He chooses the body. And this is what I want to propose to you, is that the body is important, yes, to say, we're all different, but we all need to come together and be one. But it's also important because what Paul wants to say through this passage is that the church, those who follow Jesus, are not just a normal version of humanity. They are a new humanity. So that this is a new body. Adam was the first body. He was the first man. And he had been given the entire world to run and rule underneath God's authority. He and Eve, they were the kings and queens of creation, but they mess it up. They rebel. And then we see everything sort of deteriorate and the creation is not ruled whatsoever. It's all in chaos. And we know later that Paul's going to tell us in in chapter 15 that Jesus is the new Adam. That as Adam was the first man, the first body that came, Jesus comes as a new Adam, given the same exact goal, but he's not going to mess it up this time. He is going to rule over the earth. And we're going to join him, Revelation tells us. And so Jesus is the new Adam. He's this new body. And those that follow him are joining into a new way of being human. So as Paul calls us to be the body of Christ, he's actually not just using an illustration, but he's calling us into a new humanity. And this new humanity looks very different. This humanity gets along in oneness. This humanity understands that every single person in its society has a function and are equally important. That love is what governs. Chapter 13, love governs this humanity. Not selfishness, not oppression, not injustice, but love and laying life down and trying to take care of each other as if it's your own self. And this humanity has order. Chapter 14 is going to show us. It has order. So there's a unity to this humanity. There's an order to this humanity. And love is the glue that makes all of this work. So, as we look at this body, we know that Paul is calling us into a new humanity that's under the headship of Jesus. It is something that's going to look different for the whole world. A new way to be human. Glorious indeed. So again, this new humanity is about unity and it's about order. This is what God has always intended for human beings prior to our sinful fall, that we would be a unified family and that there would be order in the world. But right now we struggle with unity and we struggle with order. So Paul's going to call them into this. Bring unity, bring order. Let's look at the new humanity. So chapter 12, number one, the new humanity is a unity. So here he talks about the unity, and this is where uh, the body illustration comes into play, that there's a unity with all the members. So, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So Paul is apparently here replying to something the Corinthians had asked him. So he's now saying, okay, we're done with the communion topic, now let's deal with your gifts. Um Let's skip down to verse four. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So yes, lots of diversity, but one God. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit, And now here he's going to list a ton of gifts. This is not exhaustive. All right? This is not a closed list. It seems to be that Paul's rattling off some ideas, and then you could almost, if this was a modern writing, you just put et cetera at the end. Like, like just keep going. There's more to be added to this. And um, a reason for thinking that is his list of gifts are never the same. In Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, very different sets as we have here in um, 1 Corinthians 12. So, in other words... You don't have to sit here and go, which one am I? Sometimes you just, what are you good at? That's your spiritual gift. And so there's a whole list of things not even mentioned. So, but here he is. Here he's going to list some of them right here for us. Give us some examples. For to one is given through the Spirit, verse 8, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you have gifts. Where do these gifts come from? They come from the spirit, he says, the one God, the one spirit who's giving all of us, the many parts of us. He's giving us our gifts, but it's coming from one source. So Paul wants them to realize that our gifts are not a competition. It's not to see who's better than who's at this or that, but they're all coming from the same source so that by using our gifts, we're all gathering around the same source. Now, if you look at verse seven, we're going to learn something about these gifts. There's three points to understand about these gifts. Verse seven, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So first, as we already mentioned, we saw there at the end of verse 11, the gifts are given to us. They're given to us by the one God so that we'd be one people. You see that to each is given. So this is not something I work up in my own um, ability, nothing I can boast about like, oh, I'm an amazing artist, and all of you need to worship my artwork because I'm just amazing. I'm godlike in it. And, you know, I did this. I created uh, my ability to do this. And Paul would say, not so fast, not so fast. This ability was given to you. So, yes, use it, and yes, let people see it. That's not being proud, but let them know who gave it to you. So that's given to us. We can't, we can't rank one another according to gifts because by doing that, you're actually telling God who um, is important. And he said, no, this is all coming from me and I'm giving. I'm choosing here. There's functions I want each person to play. So we have to understand that these are given, not earned. It's not like teachers because somehow, you know, we are the f- cursed ones that stand in front of everybody. Um, it's not like they somehow earned some special favor from God. God simply said, I choose you. And you got the unlucky lot of the lottery. (laughs) Just kidding. It's not quite that unlucky. Although James says that they are under severe judgment. So aren't you jealous? (laughs) So to each one is given. So that's first. It's given Uh, a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So second, we see that the gifts are not for you. They're for the common good. They're for the body. They're for the unity, the bringing the body as one. Now, gifts, we think of that like, so what's my spiritual gift? And then we start thinking like, oh, God gifted me with something. This is so cool. I'm special. I got a gift from God. Well, Yeah, you are special. You are loved. And he did give you a gift. But listen, the gift isn't for you. The gift is for the body. The gift is for the people next to you and all the people in the body of Christ. So it's for you to use that gift to use it properly. So if if God is giving the body a gift through some ability he's given you, you have to use it or the body will never get that gift from God. That's the idea. So he's given you something, but that's not your gift. It's for the body. So use it so the body gets the gift God wants them to have. That's the idea. So this is for the common good. I receive this ability from God, and now I use it as a gift to the body, God's gift to us. And so as the body uses these gifts, they are actually blessing one another, and the body is being stronger, and it's being built up, and it's coming together thanks to us who are humbly willing to be vulnerable and to put ourselves out there and say, I'm not even sure if I'm good at this, but I think God wants me to practice this. Boom, and then suddenly you realize everybody's super blessed by it, and that's when you understand... God gifted everybody by allowing me to do that. Amen. So it's, it's the body's gift that he's allowing to come to us through the individuals that are using their abilities. Does that make sense? So it's for the common good. Your gift is actually our gift as you use it. And then third, it's given to us. It's a gift for the common good of the body. Um, third, again in verse seven, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Your gift is a manifestation of the Spirit. This is cool. We are actually letting God reveal himself through us. As I practice what God has given me to do, and it blesses the rest of the body, one of the ways it's blessing the rest of the body and the world at large is that I'm allowing a certain aspect of our huge, enormous God to be seen through what I'm doing. And that's the reason we have so many different gifts, is so that we're not all looking at one aspect of God. But as we use different abilities, we're coming together and we're bringing a much fuller picture of the God that we worship. So that what we do is manifesting the Spirit in our midst. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But for right now, let's now go to verse 12. And this is where we're going to see what the unity looks like. So the gifts we just learned are given to us. Um, they're for everybody. They're, they're for the body. And they are manifestations of our God. Now, this unity um, is going to be put, brought together through the exercising of our gifts. And this unity has... This is what is always so beautiful in the Bible is that unity always comes with diversity. It's not calling us to a communism of some sort, or some, um, we're all the same. We all got to imitate each other. This unity is full of diversity, yet somehow it works together. And that's where we see that there's one God over this one body. So here we see the diversity in chapter 12. Um, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, through many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now here you see some diversity. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there's diversity, but there's oneness in the fact that the spirit is in us. Now verse 14. Here the body illustration picks up. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. In other words, it doesn't matter how you see yourself, okay? You don't determine what status you are in the body. You belong to the body, whether you feel important or not. You have a function, and Paul wants us to realize that there is, in a, there is a vast importance. There's just a lot of diversity in what we're doing foot, hand, mouth, eye. So he continues in verse 17. And this is where you see why diversity is important. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And if everybody was a teacher, who would there be to learn? right? (laughs) Actually, to be honest, your teachers are the ones learning the most. Just so you know, you guys are getting gypped. I learn way more than you guys learn. So I'm sorry. You guys are getting the scraps, leftovers. I'm eating all the fat here. (laughs) And some of you have tried to teach, you know that, you know, that's true. Um, anyways, (laughs) so as it is, verse 18, God arranged the members of in the body. God arranged it. He chose what your special function is. It wasn't, he's got favorites he He simply chose that you need to have different functions in this person, and each one of them, as he chose, verse nineteen, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts yet one body. And so Corinthians, they need to understand. You can't all look like the special rich leaders in your church. They might want everybody to look like them. You've got to worship the way I do. You've got to eat the way I do. Remember the whole meat issue? You've got to do everything the way I do it. Well, wait a minute. Paul's like, we're not, there's no legalism here where we're supposed to be conforming to the same exact strict standard. There is a diversity because our God is a diverse God. And furthermore, it's very tragic when missionaries go into their mission field and they bring their culture wherever they came from. Let's say Americans because we're very arrogant, and we do this. We bring America to Uganda and we say, "You're going to worship Jesus like Americans do." And the Ugandans are like, "We don't want to become Americans." And some people begin to equate Christianity with a culture, a national culture. Do you remember the Jews and Gentile arguments? Remember that in Acts? That's part of what was going on. Paul was a champion for the Gentiles saying, wait a minute. Christianity is not a culture of some nationalism. Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to follow Jesus. They can be Gentiles. Let them express whatever Gentiles express and let Jews express whatever Jews express and let them do that as one under Christ. There is much diversity, even culturally. And so, it is a beautiful thing to see the way other nations and other cultures worship God. The way that they express their love for Him, the way they do missions, the way they do church, the way they are the church. And you know, we would be better for seeing this diversity rather than saying, well, they've got it wrong and we're going to teach them a better way. <laughs> so, this diversity is beautiful. And I believe, guys. We don't understand how beautiful the church is yet. Because we, frankly, just understand our little sliver of God's body here in America. We just understand one little sliver. Very consumerism-driven, you know? Who, who's who got the best church? I'll go to that one. Um, this, to see the church in all of its different cultures would be very beautiful. And that's, I look forward, Revelation 5 talks about every nation, tribe, tongue, and language is... Um, Worshipping Jesus at once. And that will be so incredible to see the diversity brought there. So this unity is not a, all right, everybody look the same. It has a very wide spectrum of flavor. But it also has equality. So the diversity doesn't give you rankings. Like these people are more important than these people. There's equality. So that's what we see in verse twenty. you get the picture uh, there's there's parts of your body that are usually not shown but they're very important parts of your body so paul's saying it, it, look the rich in the church might be very visible and then and they might be sort of ashamed when people are coming over the house like they're kind of tucking the others the, the less desirable ones away and paul's saying what, what is this inequality thing the ones you're embarrassed about the ones you're trying to cover up think about what you cover up on your body think now about their status Pretty important. Um, of course, it could be talking about your um, modesty organs, the ones that should have modesty, or it could also be talking about the ones that are covered up inside, like the heart, the lungs, the liver. Those are very important too. Whichever he's talking about, the ones that are covered up are super important. So don't start ranking each other. Uh, verse 25 that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. Ever stub your toe? It goes to your head, doesn't it? <laughs> if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Music. It's not just the ear that rejoices in music. If it's good, your foot starts moving too. And if it's real good, all of your body starts moving. <laughs> so um, that's a little illustration for that. So we see that this unity contains diversity and equality. So there's a lot of beauty in differences, but these differences are not greater than or lesser than one another. There's an equality. And so as we are using the gifts and as the gifts are given, as the body's functioning, there is a manifestation of God's diversity. That's why the church must be diverse because we don't have a boring black and white God. We have a multicolored, dynamic, multidimensional God. We have a God who is so beautiful and colorful, it will blow the greatest beauty in this world we've ever seen out of the water. We don't even know what he's capable of because we live in a fallen world and we have colors that are probably very fallen too. We don't. And I'm, sometimes the church can be very boring in the sense that we show one mode of how to live. Like, this is it. Mm. You come on Sunday and you listen to somebody sing to you and listen to somebody talk to you and then you go home and you call it good. I also gave my tithe. We're good. Like, that's, that can be very... Um, that's that's one dimension, I guess. That's one color. But hey, wait a minute. Like Just like TV is much better than the... Some of you guys grew up on Black & White TV, didn't you? Um, just as TV has come a long way in our viewing experience. So it is with the church that the church needs to function in a way that individuals have their ability to show the unique manifestations of the creator all coming together so that we don't just have two blobs of color, but we've got a full coloring book and the people of God are offering to the world their version. You might be a purple, you might be a shade of plum, you might be lime green, you might be ocean mist, whatever that is. You might be, you know, there's all these different colors. And as we use our gifts and we find our function with in the body of Christ, they are displaying a deeper, more dynamic, more colorful God, the true beauty that this universe was meant to see. And that's why I say that we are the new humanity. And part of what a new, hum- hum- new humanity does is it brings a unity in which a multicolored God is being shown. And we're showing the world that, look, this dead, decaying carcass will be resurrected one day, and we are the forebearers of what's going to come. We're supposed to be demonstrating the heaven to come right now here on earth. And that's what people should be seeing. We're manifesting our multicolorful God. So that's the reason for unity. Paul's calling the new humanity needs to be a unity. Find your niche, use it, go for it. But second, there needs to be an order So if, if we're displaying this beautiful spectrum of God's color, um, there needs to be an artistry to this, right? We need to have an artistic flair to this. You can't just take colors, whatever you want, and just throw them together. Usually you get brown or something very ugly. If you just throw colors together. Um, you also can't just make, there's modern art, right? There's seriously some modern art graffiti on a toilet. Yeah. That's in a museum, um, Bricks, twenty by thirty, just laid on the floor. That's in a museum. Like, really? That's art. My daughter can do that. um And then you know, the painting just thrown, the paint just thrown on a canvas. Okay, I see it. Yeah, I feel moved. (laughs) I don't know, but look, there's some artistry to this. Like, God wants these colors put in a certain order, put in a certain form, so that a picture is presented. It's not enough to have diversity. That's just going crazy. It needs to have order, and that's what art is. It's beauty being brought under order, and that's what we need to have. So an order needs to be done. We need a little bit of artistry, a little bit of vision to bring the diversity, to bring the unity into a certain direction, and that's what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 14. So though I talk about it in art and colors, his wording is going to be tongues and prophecy suddenly much more foreign, right? Like, whoa, well, okay, I don't get it. <laughs> um, here's what's going on. Some of the gifts that were being used probably were being exaggerated as the most important ones. Uh, tongues being probably the culprit. So, what are tongues? Some of you in this room have the gift of tongues. And you could probably explain it better than I, because I don't have the gift of tongues. But what tongues are is it's, it's another language. Um, usually an existing language of some form. It's, it, it, at least it has been. Uh, it's another language used that you pray to God. And so you begin to pray and sometimes you don't know what to pray. And so this other language actually takes over and you don't really, you're like, whoa, what's going on? The spirit of God is praying through you and your mind has no idea what it's saying. So that would be the gift of tongues and the this, would be, this was being used in the Corinthian gatherings that as they finished their meal, and hopefully they had gotten that corrected and there weren't drunk people and there weren't people that didn't get to eat. Hopefully they were doing one table, and as they would let the meal digest, then they would begin to pray, they'd begin to sing, they'd begin to prophesy, and the gift of tongues was starting to come out, And now, th- which was fine. Paul was fine with tongues being used in their gatherings, but what started to happen is the gift of tongues was being used excessively And it even probably in their oratory society, uh, they probably started to outdo one another. You know, the left side of the table versus the right side of the table. I went with my tongues for five minutes, (laughs) I went with mine for seven, and then it's just like going back and forth. And the other people are going, and no clue what they're saying. Zero clue. Some of you think, yes. It could be some of you think right now that I'm doing the same thing. I have no clue what he's saying. He's speaking another language. Um, But that was what was going on. It's not benefiting the body. So Paul is saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We need some order. You can't just get together and do whatever you want. Just let the gifts flow, baby. There needs to be some sort of place for them, some sort of order, some sort of use, some sort of cooperation. So in chapter 14, verse 1, he's going to tell them to pursue love and earnestly to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So what Paul's doing is he's not necessarily going to say, prophecy is the greatest gift you can ever have. He's elevating prophecy because it's a better gift than tongues in the sense of gathering together. He's going to explain it. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. God understands what you're saying, but you don't, they don't. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So prophecy is intelligible. You get it. You can understand it. And it's actually helping the body of Christ. So he wants them to use prophecy, not tongues. What's prophecy? Um, we might be tripped out. You're like, oh, didn't you know about this whole tongue thing? And they're like, if prophecy too? My goodness. So are we supposed to stand up? Thus says the Lord. In two years, you're going to get in a car wreck and you need to know that God is... With- no, whoa, what's going on? Like, no, like, hold on, hold on. Prophecy doesn't always work that way. In the Old Testament, the prophets would stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And they would say things and sometimes foretell the future. There's definitely an element of prophecy. But often they were actually talking to Israel's immediate situation and they were applying the word of God afresh to that situation. And that's what Paul wants in the church, is the spirit of prophecy to be spoken and to move. And all that's saying for us is, yes, you can prophesy. Prophecy is speaking God's word in a fresh new way to a specific situation. And we're in need of prophets in our culture today. We have a lot of confusion and a lot of compromise going on in the church. And we need people that that can have the insight into the heart of people and what's going on and say, this is how God's word fits here. This is what he's saying afresh to this generation. We need that. This body needs that. We need those people that are willing to speak the spirit's voice today. Now, give us guidance, give us insight. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, prophecy occasionally that might be some telling of the future but more often than not prophecy was about having discernment about the moment and knowing god's word for the moment that's prophecy and some of you may have been prophesied over you may have been in a gathering where prophecy has happened it's powerful teaching informs the mind but prophecy grabs the soul and it grabs the spirit and some teachers have a gifted combination of both where they're very informative and also sometimes that element of prophecy, and you, you usually don't know when you're using it. It just comes out and, like bam, that's where the life change is happening. God is speaking specifically in that moment. Um, that's what Paul's encouraging. So don't be weirded out by the word prophecy. I know it's an it's a unused word in our culture, so we're weirded out by it. So maybe we just need another word for it, but whatever. Um, that's the idea. Okay, so the one who speaks, verse 4, in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So what should you use when you gather? Yeah, the one that builds up the church. So hey, tongues are fine. Use it at home though. Have your own private um, relationship with God in that sense. But together use the more beneficial gift of tongues. Now, um, it's a lengthy passage and for time reasons, it would not benefit us to read every single verse. So I do want to just point out a couple things about it though. So let's look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. So in case tongues happen, some people will just, God will tell them what is being said. Um, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will also praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Paul's calling for, hey, let there be a level of intelligence in the church. We can't just check the mind out and say, it's all faith and it's all emotion. (laughs) We've got to have some sort of intelligence. There is reason in Christianity. And C.S. Lewis is famous for bringing that to our table. We're very grateful for C.S. Lewis because he does bring a bit of intellect into our faith. And many current people today, too. But for some reason, the dead ones are the safe ones. Um, it's true. It's true. Okay. I don't know where I was. I think verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So again, just that use something that everybody understands and can agree together on. So I thank God, verse 18, that I speak in tongues more than all of you, Paul says. All right, so Paul there is boasting about his gift of tongues. (laughs) I speak more than all of you. Probably his purpose here is to say, stop having a competition. I win. So just drop the tongue issue. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So they're the rebuke. Drop the tongue issue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, yes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. Okay, um, verse 20, he's going to explain then that if you guys are always speaking in tongues and an outsider walks in, what are they going to think? What in the world is going on? Either they're crazy, they're speaking in gibberish, and I, don't get, I have no place here, or probably what Paul's thinking is uh, speaking in, okay, the prophecy of um, the society in the temples, the prophets and prophetesses would just lose their mind. They would they would have ecstatic experiences, and, and the more you lost yourself, the more possessed by the God you were. And so they would just go crazy. And Paul's saying that's not the way the church operates. The Spirit of God doesn't make you go crazy. The Spirit of God gives you self control. And so Paul is bringing this idea that it, if it's from the Spirit of God, it's not just going to come out. and You're like I couldn't help it, man. It's going to be your mind is going to be active. Your mind is going to understand. Your mind is going to say, okay. I can use it or I don't have to use it. So Paul wants them to have some sort of self-control, some sort of order in their gathering. Um, So in verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let each bring their gift. Let all things be done for building up. Let any speak in a tongue. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So Paul says, hey, let only two or three at a time. Make sure you're offering interpretations. If they're going to happen, you got to interpret them, and don't let them pile up so that you forget the first one. After two or three, make sure you're interpreting, and make sure that's happening. But if there is no one to interpret, verse 28, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So your tongues are fine, but just keep that between you and God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So here we get an insight to prophecy. So two or three prophecies are uttered, and Paul says, hey, consider it. Because prophecy isn't just Proverbs 29.3, blah, blah, blah. Um, Prophecy is, I feel like the Spirit of God is telling us this tonight. Whoa, okay, well, that could be a little hairy. (laughs) Who are you to say that God is speaking that to you? And so Paul says, let the community weigh it. Is that from God or not? What does the community think? So there's actually a little bit of democracy here. And so he says, after every two or three, make sure you guys give break to weigh what is being said. Is this from the Lord or is it not? So we should never have prophets that run around unchecked and unbalanced, just saying what they want. Like, well, God told me. Well, that's very dangerous. Kool-Aid can lead to Kool-Aid. If a revelation, verse 30, is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for, if, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's all Paul had to say. <laughs> so let there be order, let there be peace, not chaos. Now. So that's very clear. So look, the, the diversity, the gifts, they're bringing a lot of color, the multicolors of God, But let there be some sort of artistry to this. Not just random. It's got to be ordered. It's got to be going somewhere. There needs to be vision with it. So that's how we bring the beauty of God to the table. Um, That's how the one body should operate. In diversity, but together. I'm glad my body isn't going in two different directions at the same time. That would be very challenging. So, um, in verse 33, uh, the middle of it, we get into this hairy situation. I'm addressing it because... I know everyone will be mad if I don't. So those of you who've read ahead have questions here. So as in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay. Um, so here you have a very strong statement. The women should be silent. Let them speak at home only. It's a shame to speak at church. However, last week in chapter 11, verse five, we heard Paul say that the women are prophesying and praying and he encouraged it. He said, just let them keep their hair up so that there's distinction between roles of men and women, but the women can worship equally with the men. So, it almost seems like there's a contradiction here where Paul now says, actually, shut up. Just... <laughs> and some churches, and through history, this has been used as a way of silencing women. And there's been a lot of abuse throughout the years and in some places today still. So, what are we to make of this? Um, is Paul contradicting himself or what's going on? Well, here's one theory. I'm just going to share the two leading theories. Um, there, there are a few others, of course. There's always someone has an idea. Is how some scholars make a little living. But these are the two valid ideas. Although I reject this first one. <laughs> the first is that these two verses, 34 and 35, are post-Pauline. In other words, what I mean is that a scribe copying the letters of Paul added this passage in who wanted to have a say in how church was run. The reason for this view is a couple of reasons. Um, one, this, these two verses in some of the ancient manuscripts, they're found actually at the end of the chapter, not here. They're in a different location, which is a hint. It's a red flag for hmm, might have been inserted by a scribe at some point. Another reason for thinking this is that Paul addresses the churches. He didn't do that throughout Corinthians. He's addressing the Corinthians. But all of a sudden, in all the churches, let the women be silent. Wait a minute. It sounds like a scribe is trying to make a universal statement to everybody. So that's the reason for that theory. However, I think that there is no reason to start doing that. Oh, this wasn't written by Paul. It seems like a scapegoat, an easy way out. Um, there's no reason for doing that unless the evidence demands it. And the evidence doesn't demand it. It just says it could be true. There's, if there's a reasonable explanation, I think we need to go with that. And so here is the most reasonable explanation I found, is that um, at the time, women were very uneducated. It was just the culture. You know, The women stayed at home and did the things, and the men, the men were the ones that went to school. And so just by nature of the culture, as they're sitting in the church and somebody's instructing them on the things of God, the women by nature knew less than the men about things that the speaker was saying. And so what Paul did not want happening were the women interrupting the entire community for simple questions. Questions that they could ask when they get home from their husband. So Paul doesn't want to slow the community's learning. He wants all of them to keep advancing, but make sure your simple questions are left for home at the dinner table. That's all he's saying. So actually, what he's doing is he's establishing an order so that the church can keep growing and he's doing something countercultural. He's advocating women to learn. He's for that. He wants them to learn. Good job. You've got questions? This is great. Have your husband teach you. And that's something husbands did not do in the culture. They didn't teach women. Women were considered to have an inferior mind than men. So Paul's actually now also telling the men, okay, treat women like an equal. They have an intellectual capacity like you do. Treat them that way. Go ahead and instruct them at home. So that's simply what he's doing. He's trying to allow not to be too many interruptions, but at the same time allowing women to have a chance, which culture was depriving them of. In other words, Christianity was revolutionary, and Paul was supporting it. That, to me, sounds like a much better explanation, Okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So we've gone through um these chapters in their sum and what we see here is that we are one body which is a new humanity and it needs to move in unity and it needs to move in order, color and artistry. But all bodies have the threat of disease. And this is what we have to guard against. Disease. We're all prone to it. And this body, the body of Christ, is prone to disease. This is what disease is. Disease is a condition in which prevents the body from functioning properly. A a disease simply prevents the body from functioning properly. And often it's one of its own members that shuts down or works improperly and it affects the whole body and it ultimately leads to death. So disease. Is there disease in us is there disease in the church of america is there disease in the church around the world these are questions we must face in light of what the new humanity should look like a being of unity and order i can tell you right now what disease would look like up front it would look like division and disorder a body that is not functioning as a unity that's a diseased body A body that is not functioning with order, but it is in disarray and disorder, that is a diseased body as well. And Paul would want us to be on guard of disease. Don't let the body of Christ be diseased, let it function properly. So, question how do we make the body function properly? Well, healthy exercise for one. Healthy exercise. Let the body work. Let the body function. Let the body exercise. Don't shut parts of it down because then disease will invade. Let it move and let it work. So let's close with looking at two ways that we can let the body function and exercise in a healthy manner. Two ways. First, let the body selflessly serve Let the body selflessly serve. That's what Paul wants us to understand. You've been given a gift. Remember who that gift is for. It's for the body. So selflessly use it. Serve the body with it. Let it go. You've got to prioritize the body. You've got to prioritize others more than your own gift. All right, they're the important ones. You don't use your gift to exalt yourself. That brings division. That brings disorder. You use your gift to selflessly serve the body. So start using it and start pouring it out for others. That's the idea. Selflessly serve. So look, understand your place, understand your gift, know what you're good at, know what you love to do, and now use it for them, not you. Selflessly serve. That will prevent disease. Second, skillfully serve. Skillfully serve. It's an important balance. Selflessly served does not mean well, okay. Hey everybody, God uh wants me to gift the body with teaching. So, I don't know. Where are we tonight? Oh, that's where okay, cool. Um, verse one. I, I think that's what this is saying. At least last time I read something on it, that's what I understood. Uh and like totally unprepared, right? That wouldn't be good. Would that be a gift to the body? you all be like, this is a waste of my time. Isn't, aren't the angels playing the tigers right now? I should be home. Um, that's, see, so skillfully serve is very important. God wants you to use your gift the best you can, the very best you can. Yes, it's given to you, but it doesn't mean that God said here um, on, a, on a level of skillfulness, 10 out of 10, just given to you. Woo! Nobody starts that way. Everybody works hard at what they're good at. And they get better and better at it. And God wants you to get better and better at what you do. But isn't that arrogant? Isn't that proud? Well, unless my foot is proud and arrogant by trying to be the best foot it can be. Are you kidding me? Please foot. I want my foot to be the best foot it can be. It is actually loving of my foot to be strong and to be balanced and to be supportive. It helps my entire body. I couldn't move around if my foot wasn't being the best foot it can be. If my mouth, if my hands weren't the best they can be, it would be very unloving to me. And so each of us, God gave you something, cultivate it, treasure it, be the best you can be at it and use it so that this can be the best body it can be. They're people that depend upon your function. And it is up to us to skillfully serve. So, yes, selflessly serve. It's not about me, it's about the body. But skillfully serve. Get better and better and better at it and be the best you can be. Be the brightest green you can be, the the purest purple you can be. Whatever that manifestation of God is, be it and be all it. This, we will next week look at the love chapter. This is how we love. This is how we bring the unity of the body and the order of the body together. Love must glue chapters 12 and 14 together. And so we'll spend next week looking at love within the body of Christ. So let's keep our body healthy by selflessly serving and skillfully serving.